No, then never mind. That's never mind. I'll leave it on the way home. So good evening, everyone, and welcome to Huntington Arts Council. This is our conversations on the arts this evening, and tonight we are talking about the arts and propaganda. I will keep you awake. I think it's a very interesting topic. Thank you for coming. Uh, I want to introduce myself. I'm Mark Cortade. I'm the executive director of the Huntington Arts Council, and this is something I wanted to do for years and finally got to the point of doing it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Susan. Um, so tonight we have, alphabetically, Barbara Applegate, Leonard J. Lerman, John Torres, from the visual art world, the music world, the theater world. What I'm going to do is give a brief little intro and then we will get into some introductions from the panel and get on to talking about the arts and propaganda. Here is my, my thesis, I, as we would call it. Art may be used to persuade. It is not objective, and it is rarely the unadulterated self-expression of individual genius. It may be part of the agendas and demands of others and is a powerful method of expressing a point of view. So propaganda can be used as a tool, either intentionally or unintentionally, to influence public opinion, especially during times of war and conflict. So with that, I'm going to ask the panel um, for brief introductions of yourself. And I'd like to refer to all of you as part of the cultural landscape of Long Island, because you are. Each of you has viewpoints and visions that um, some might view as platforms for social change. Uh, include any brief examples as you introduce yourself of things you've done in your respective fields that you feel have made an impact that some might call propaganda, some might not. So I'll start with John Torres, because he's right here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, as Mark said, I'm John Torres. Uh, we know each other going back many years, uh, sharing some theater together originally. Um, most recently, I've done a lot of work with East Line Theater in Wanta. Uh, it's a black box theater. Uh, hosts a full main stage season every year. We're uh, multiple uh, recipients of the uh, DEC Award through the Hutchinson Arts Council, which we're very happy and proud of. Um, what I, I personally like about Eastline is the mission is to do rarely or seldom done works um, that have something to say that look like the community in which it serves, which is kind of neat. A lot of thought goes into selecting the uh, eight or so sh main stage shows that are done every year. Um, a challenge we, I found in my experience doing theater on Long Island is to pay the bills, you know, um, Fiddler on the Roof, Sound of the Music, you know, uh, Arthur Miller, uh, Death of a Salesman, that kind of stuff, which has its place and is great stuff, but um, very rarely do you see the kind of things that you would normally go into Manhattan, for instance, to see. 
Um, and that's uh, one of the services that Eastline provides. And in doing so, some of the productions that we've done definitely, you know, one could say have a, you know, a political bent, um, have a point of view, uh, and actually could, you know, make people think and maybe spur some discussion and change and stuff like that. My name is Barbara Applegate. I'm the director at Steinberg Museum of Art, which is on the LIU Post campus over here in Brookville. I have, um, I'm just entering year 21 in that position. And um, I know. And uh, I've spent 25 years working in the not-for-profit sector um, in this area. I also teach in art history with a specialization in American art history. Um, when we think about the notion of propaganda and we think about teaching American art history, you know, that's certainly part of our, our discourse. So when we look at Washington crossing the Delaware versus George Washington Carver crossing the Delaware, um, you can have two very sort of different kinds of conversations about what kind of propaganda we're looking at. Um, as far as my work in the museum goes, um, I'm involved with um, the gender equity movement in museums, the notion that it's a pink collar industry where many women work and um, what the sort of impact upon our salaries and things like this, what that does to, to us. Um, we also present exhibitions that certainly have positions in the museum and nationally there is a movement um, in museums called Museums Are Not Neutral. Um, we believe that we are always telling an unbiased story, and that is absolutely not the truth. And as sort of this, uh, the next generation comes in, that truth is exposed more and more often about the biases that museums offer. Last year, we presented an exhibition titled Dignity, which explored issues concerning Native American populations and Native populations across the world, which was very positioned. Um, about the rights of indigenous peoples internationally. Um, I don't know that anybody voiced a, a, a side opinion to me, um, but I'm sure there were people who wondered, well, who cares about indigenous peoples around the world? So, and I'm glad to be here tonight, and I hope Mark doesn't uh, stump the chump with the questions. We'll see. <laughs> it's, uh, you're not going to be graded. I'd also like to say, we piloted this conversations idea in April, and the first one was, women in museums. Barbara was on that panel. She's at, you're on the cover of the newspaper from a, a terrific photo. And we did talk about things like the, the gender inequalities. And I think the museums are one of the last bastions. You know, they're, they're, they're really behind some other slow-moving um, art, arts forms. So, uh, and it started a brilliant conversation. So I hope we can say the same thing about tonight. And uh, Leonard. I'm Leonard Lehrman, uh, and I'm listed on the program as founder and director of the Metropolitan Philharmonic Chorus, which was founded uh, on Long Island in 19, well, the Metropolitan area, actually, in 1987. And we just did our 50th, 51st pro programs uh, in um, Long Beach and, and on up in, um, uh, help me, uh, Roslyn. Yeah, uh, I'm actually a native of Roslyn, um, but living in Valley Stream now. And uh, the Metropolitan Philharmonic Chorus was founded to, to do works that other choruses could not or would not do. Um, particularly the great uh, oratorio, I Have a Dream, the cantata by Elie Siegmeister, 
that uh, was written while Dr. King was alive and was uh, to be premiered at uh, synagogue in Long Beach. It was premiered there, but that was 12 days after Dr. King gave his Riverside uh, uh, church speech, and so it was all hushed up because it, Dr. King became, I don't know if you, you remember this, but some of you might not be old enough, but the last year of his life, Dr. King was in living hell. He was persona non grata because of that speech criticizing the Vietnam War, and he was assassinated exactly one year after that uh, speech. And during that year, uh, the cantata was premiered, and uh, he was supposed to come, and uh, Jacob Javits was supposed to come, Robert Kennedy was supposed to come. None of them came because the American Legion threatened to picket the temple if Dr. King showed up. Um, now we consider him a saint, but that last year of his life was hell. And that piece was kind of buried until 1989, when I resurrected it uh, for Dr. King's 60th birthday, which was the same day as the Ellie Siegmeister's 80th birthday. And we did it at the Harlem School of the Arts, and it was broadcast on, uh, uh, on, on WQXR and WBAI for years after that. Um, and we just did it again la last year for the uh, 110th birthday of Siegmeister and the uh, 90th birthday of, of, of Dr. King. Um, in fact, we did it in Huntington. 10 years ago for the centennial. So the, the chorus was founded to do that piece and this piece, uh, We Are Innocent, based on the letters of uh, Julius Nethel Rosenberg. Um, and uh, I suppose that Roy Cohn, who was the mentor of the current Oval Office occupant, uh, would probably say that that was communist propaganda because he personally helped to get uh, uh, the Rosenbergs killed, particularly Ethel. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's communist propaganda. I don't think it's propaganda. But uh, what does the word propaganda mean? I hope we're going to get to talk about that because I have a, 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 I'm going to be talking about music, but I'm going to be talking about it as it relates particularly to theater and literature and poetry in several cultures, uh, American, Russian, German, Romanian. We just got back from Romania, and I have some Romanian uh, work to share with you. I hope I'll get a chance to read you a short poem. Um, and it's going to be sung by my wife here in Huntington, October 2nd, we just found out yesterday. Uh, it'll be at the Whitman birthplace, but I'd like to read you the poem before we, we finish. So, uh, I mean, propaganda is uh, a loaded term. Uh, it's negative. Let me get in here. Let, let me give Go you ahead. a good segue here. How do you define the meaning of the word propaganda? What do you, do you think it has different meanings in different cultures and societies? Okay, the word comes from the Latin. Uh, it's a, an ablative gerundive from propagare, which means to propagate or to spread around, to disseminate, to enlighten, to teach. That's where it comes from. And in certain cultures, uh, it's thought of very positively. The first uh, use of it uh, in modern times is in uh, 15... Uh, 72, no, excuse me, um, 1622. Pope Gregory the, the, uh, the 13th, Gregory the 15th, and then in 1627, Pope Urban the 8th started the uh, variously described as Congregation Commission or collegi Collegium College, De Propaganda Fides, for the dissemination of the faith, for the teaching, the propagation, the propaganda of the faith. That's the first use of the word propaganda in Latin. And then it was a hundred years later that it was first used 
in English. In 1718, believe it or not, in a translation of a French tract that had been written at least 10 years earlier about a voyage to the Levant, that college of propaganda fides was referred to in 1718. In 1797, there was a, a group called the Propaganda, and um, members were um, engaged to stir up subjects against their lawful rulers. That was the, the group that called itself Propaganda. So all of this is, you know, from the point of view of the people doing it, very positive. Now, I first encountered the word Propaganda in my own work and in my own research, doing an opera, writing an opera based on a, a short story that my uncle discovered in the, um, uh, in, in the New York Public Library called The Krasovitsky Couple. This is a poster from it. It was done at Cornell in the 70s. And uh, it's based, this short story was written by David Yakovlevich Eisman, who was called the Jewish Chekhov. He's almost entirely unknown in the West or anywhere now because he was an exile from Russia who wrote in Russian, was published and performed. His plays were performed and his poems were published, stories were published in France and in Germany. Never in Russia, only in Russian. And, and uh, my uncle discovered this and I made an opera out of his story. And um, there's a passage in the, in, in the story which is in the, um, uh, in the opera. This woman has adopted a child orphaned by pogroms. And she thinks it's such a great idea. She says, oh, I'm so glad I got the idea of taking her. I, and now I will make propaganda. I'll raise the point. I'll agitate. You'll see. Many, many people will follow my examples and all of the children in the orphanage will be adopted. And see, there she is making propaganda in 1906 in Russia in a positive way. And wh wh what happened to that term in Russian? Well, in 1920, there was an office of agitprop organized. Agitation and propaganda in the Soviet Union. They toured, a, a theater group toured Germany in 1927. That's the beginning of agitprop theater in Germany in 1927. And then of course you get Bertolt Brecht, which I guess mm -hmm. we'll get to talk about because mm -hmm. he has a special place in the, in the and, and also Mayakovsky. Mayakovsky was the first Russian song that I poem that I set to music, and it was just recorded last year in St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. and I hope we'll get to talk about him, because yeah, his place in the area of propaganda is unique, just like Bertolt Brecht's. Well, let's get to some, I, I came up with some historical concepts, artistic concepts of propaganda. I, you can argue with me on some of these if you like, or you can expound on them if you like. 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes a novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Abraham Lincoln met Stowe at the start of the Civil War, and it's the very famous quote, so this is the little lady who started the Great War. Uh, is, is Uncle Tom's Cabin a work of propaganda? You know, it was, it was written to really inflame the North, and it, it's regarded as a great, a seminal work. I wouldn't call it a great work. I mean, I've, I actually have read it. I don't know if anyone else has read it, and there's... There, parts of it are very good, and parts of it where she's like on her soapbox are very good, and other parts are like, you've got to be kidding me, you know. I saw the king and I, I know what happens. Um, so uh, there's, uh, you know, that is one example. I will go to a theatrical example. 1937, there was a musical review called Pins and Needles. Do you know Pins and Needles? Well, oh, yes. 
This is a very interesting thing. It was the International Ladies Garment Workers sponsored an inexpensive review, and it started on Broadway starring garment workers performing. And they, it was like, it was a lighthearted look at current events in society. And it did get politicized. There were spoofs and things in that. Um, Harold Rome wrote the music on this. Some of the book is by Mark Blitzstein. Well, Mark, who, that had many different, uh, uh, different iterations. Writers, yes. And Blitzstein did have a, a skit in it, which was a takeoff on the Federal Theater. It was called exactly. FTP Plowed Under, takeoff on AAA Plowed Under. Yeah, yeah. but, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm an expert on Blitzstein, I haven't finished 20 of his yeah. works, but, but Howard Rome wrote most of that work, and then Blitzstein was in part of it. And of course, The Cradle Will Rock, uh, is right around right, that time exactly. too, exactly. Uh, which yeah. is uh, another seminal work in political theater. Yeah. Which are, you know, and they were s subversive. Cradle of Rock is is a subversive musical, <laughs> um, and it, it 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 has its moments in it. Uh, I will go to another example, which you know, I I'm happy when I watch Turner Classic, great film called Mrs. Miniver, released in 1942. It started getting filmed in 1941. William Wyler, why did he make this film? He was born in Austria, a Jewish background, and he wanted to do a film that would sort of convince people to say, hey, we've got to stop being neutral and do something about this. And he makes it, it's a really remarkable film for the time. It's not a war movie. It centers on a family and what the war in London does to the family dynamics. Winston Churchill said, this film has done more for the war effort than a flotilla of destroyers. <laughs> it was just one of those, it roused, roused people. I mean, Greer Garson captures a Nazi pilot in her kitchen. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't everyone, doesn't everyone. But I mean, there, is there something very terrifying about it? That, you know, oh, things are happening and we have to do something. And Martin, with, just go, go back to The Credible Rock for just a second. I want you to know something you probably don't know. So, uh, the Credible Rock was uh, a morality play about the fall of capitalism. Um, but it was actually even more of a propaganda tract in its original sketch. Because the hero of, of the, 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 one of the heroines of, of, of The Credible Rock is, is uh, Ella Hammer. And the hero is named Larry Foreman. And his original name was Larry Sickle. Hammers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually, didn't Alfred Drake Alfred do Drake a revival of? My parents. He did the revival it. of. It was not recorded, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, but there exactly. is a new recording that just came out with the orchestral yeah. uh, version yes, that had right. never really been heard before, except at City Opera. We're getting our geek on tonight, folks. Okay. I, this <laughs> is like yeah. uh, this can is I, maybe. Can I add in? On absolutely, the, please on do. The, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I was. Th I think about this often. Um, the topic of my undergraduate research was a a particular artist named Robert Duncanson. And Duncanson was a biracial artist living in Cincinnati during the time of slavery. And he, he basically, he goes as a interior painter, is painting this home. And the man who is commissioned these sort of, you know, decorative murals inside, sees him and sees his great skill. And as an abolitionist says, because you're a black man, and you're doing work just as good as any white men have ever seen, I'd like to pay for your education in Europe. I'd like to pay for you to have a trip and learn to paint. Because his idea was if people could see that this biracial artist could paint just as well as any white artist, 
we would be able to change the course of our, our thinking. But there's a point at which it begins to feel to the artist exploitive. And he's asked to paint on the themes of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle Tom and Little Eva. And he, he writes in his own journal, he doesn't use the term exploitation, but he talks about this idea of beginning to feel exploited for this. And I, you know, this is kind of that turning point of propaganda and exploitation that I think is, you know, for Uncle Tom's Cabin, something interesting. There was a musical too, wasn't there, Uncle Tom's Cabin? There was all sorts of iterations yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. China Definitely. too. Definitely. This is a, a more towards you, 1985. William Hoffman writes As Is. Larry Kramer writes The Normal Heart. Uh, both plays are it really inspired social activism in this country. It, this is the height of the HIV AIDS crisis in this, in this country. And they're the first two major plays uh, on Broadway to discuss that. You, you know, you know nor, you, did you, were you in Normal Heart? Or? No, I was in the East Production. It did. I saw the original production of Brad Davis. Yeah. There you go. Talk a bit. Well, to me, when I think propaganda, uh, in your intro, you mentioned the word persuasion. You know, it's, it's, um, it's an active, intentional effort to persuade, to, to agitate, as uh, Leonard was saying, you know, with the agitprop in the Russian days, and the revolution. Um, the kind of theater that, that I gravitate to, you know, shares a point of view that may spur those kinds of thoughts and that kind of action, but isn't necessarily as overt now, Normal Heart, 180 degrees different. Larry Kramer was literally looking to agitate. He was uh, hanging out outside the theater lobby, handing out pamphlets, you know, literally, you know, shouting to anybody who would hear him. So that's a perfect example of overt theatrical propaganda, which I think was done really well, but I think also it was a matter of, um, for its time, what it was trying to do, it really was really well placed, right? So you, you counter that with something like Lynn Nottage's Sweat, right, which was first produced in 2016 prior to the presidential election that year, right? And I don't know if anybody's seen the show or familiar with it, but it's a perfect explanation for where our country was at that time, resulting in how that election turned out. Lynn Nottage wasn't overtly trying to say that. I mean, how could she, right? But she was really capturing, observing a particular point of view at that time, which really wound up being pretty prescient, right? The, the, Leonard was mentioning Brecht. You know, a lot of people automatically think of him in terms of propaganda, but the epic theater, I mean, his goal was to really be actually, from a point of view, dispassionate. His, his goal was to present each side rigorously and let the audience decide which one was quote unquote right, you know? Um, that's the kind of thing that I kind of gravitate to because I think that when you get hit over the head, kind of what Mark was saying about, you know, Uncle Thomas Cavan, you know, when you get too obvious about it, then I think it ceases to become art and it becomes uh, uh, something else. And that's, that's really, I think, a very good point to make is something like, I mean, Normal Heart was, he was angry and he was forcing, 
he was forcing a point of view on you. As is, is more make your own, you know, I'm presenting a love story and then something terrible happens. You know, it, it was less a, a, a persuasion as a, a, different, a different point of view, make your own conclusions. Normal Heart was like angry to start with and had, and had to go somewhere from that. And just was definitely, I think, more in the propaganda category um, than as is was. And you, There's you an opera uh, called As One by Laura Kaminsky, which has had about 27 productions in the last few years. I think it's the, the most produced uh, contemporary opera today. Um, she's a good friend of ours. I heard her father was actually present at my bris, would you believe? Uh, he, called, he, called, he called me his, his godfather. Um, but she, she, uh, she wrote this opera, and it's about uh, transgender. Uh, uh, it's, it's a man and a woman playing the same person, basically. And um, it's, it's very sensitive, and it's very light for the most part. The heavy part of it is the propaganda part of it, which is in the middle of it, they recite the names of all the transgender people who have been molested or, or, or hurt or killed uh, because of, of, of their status. Uh, and um, it's, it's very powerful. Um, and, and as I said, it's, it's, it's one of the most popular things today. I was going to say, sometimes there, there's examples where I think in this country we get the idea that propaganda is a bad thing. Propaganda is bad. You're not supposed to do it. Even though that statement was kind of propaganda. <laughs> like, you know, there, there's... A lot of the arts get people to think, and that's something that's usually usually welcomed. Um, we won't get into present times, um, but to I, I, I wanted to go back to um, Mayakovsky, mm -hmm. who uh, was uh, a, a writer of uh, agitprop play, plays and poems. He wrote um, uh, the Bathhouse, the Bedbug. He wrote a play called. Vladimir Mayakovsky, starring Vladimir Mayakovsky. Um, and he, Good propaganda. <laughs> and and, and he, 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 uh, uh, he was lauded, you know, as, as, as a champion of agitprop. But on April 9th, 1930, he read a poem called At the Top of My Voice. And um, in it, he, he wrote, agitprop sticks in my teeth. I'd rather write uh, romances to you. And the students in his audience shouted him down as being too obscure, not being agitprop enough. <laughs> yeah. He committed suicide five days later mm -hmm. and, and, and was lionized, canonized by Stalin, you know, because he was no longer a threat. But uh, a very important uh, writer of, of, of uh, dynamic uh, verse and, and uh, uh, plays and uh, associated with agitprop, and yet, Ambiguous, the way Bertolt Brecht was. There's a wonderful story. You, know, you were talking about uh, Brecht and his uh, uh, dispassion. It's, well, it's, it, it, it's the Verfremdungseffekt, which is sometimes connect, uh, uh, translated as alienation. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a very good translation. It's actually, it actually comes from Prima Stranienia, which is uh, Meyerhold's term. He, he borrowed it from the Russians, actually. Um, and his, uh, uh, his concept, of, John Fugge said it beautifully years ago. Make, he, was, uh, he took it from Wordsworth. He was took Wordsworth to paraphrase Brecht, making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a wonderful story that my colleague James Lyon, who wrote a book about Brecht in America, tells about um, how he was, uh, uh, he interviewed um, people in Hollywood that, that Brecht hung out with. And um, there was a, a, an FBI report or something about these people, and they were in three groups. The first group was, um, solid communists, and the second was anti-communists. And the third group is Bertolt Brecht. 
Uh, is he was right on the fence constantly. And, and there's a story that, that he, he, he uh, went, when he came to America for the first time, um, the mother was done at the, uh, the, the theater union, and um, he and Eisler, Hans Eisler, the, the composer, were, were there, and they were um, yelling and screaming about, uh, 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 about uh, how their work was being uh, maligned, and, and, the, and, and, and they were finally thrown out of the theater, actually. But, but they, they, uh, um, they started calling uh, 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 for Communist Party rules or something, and then the, the, uh, uh, the people in the theater were, were, were communists, and they, they, they called them Communist Party rules, and Breck and Eisler said, well, we're not communists. We're not subject to those rules. You know, <laughs> it was just uh, that, that, that kind of back and forth. Yeah. And that's, uh, well, let's... Uh, this is going to lead to something else okay. shortly. Okay. But let me start by doing... Okay, is there a difference between art and propaganda? One man's art may be another man's propaganda. I'm going to start referring to some of the, the posters that are very, very powerful propaganda. Now, I mentioned one title to you called... Uh, in 1942, J. Howard Millian, Millman did a poster called Rosie the Riveter. Oh, yeah. You all know Rosie the Riveter. This propaganda art, is it art? Is it propaganda? You know, like, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I think that there's, there's a little bit of distinction to make, and something that you were kind of coming down with on a, on a granular level with the discussion about Uncle Tom's Cabin and then this idea of beating, being beaten over the head a little bit. I think on a granular level, it can't be, it can't be art unless we can have an aesthetic conversation about it. If, a, if aesthetics in some way don't filter in, then we, then we don't have a work of art. So if, it's, if there's not a, a piece in here that talks about aesthetics or turning your back on aesthetics or whatever it is, so that like a, there are particular pieces of propaganda promoted by lots of different things about like the flu shot and you know, what have you. Those are propaganda. The guy who makes them as work for hire, you know, as a designer of some kind, but it doesn't have that, on a granular level, it doesn't have that aesthetic piece. So there, there's a little bit of a, um, a fork in the road there. Um, the, the other piece of that sort of fork in the road that, that maybe we can think about too um, is whether or not it's work for hire. You know, are you building something that, that you have built as an artist because you feel compelled? Or are you asked to do something because there's a paycheck at the end of it, right? Like there's a sign shop in Oyster Bay that prints the hell out of Trump, you know, prints the hell out of Trump magnets for the back of people's cars. Does that mean the sign shop owner is a propagandist? No, he's a businessman. It's work for hire. He'll get it done. So, you know, you kind of have that, that road that, that full, falls aside. Rosie the Riveter and War Bonds posters are work for hire. You know, these are work for hire. Someone is asked to convey that message in a creative way. Can you have an aesthetic conversation about it? I sure hope so, um, because we had an entire exhibition of World War I posters <laughs> yeah. in the museum. Um, they're owned by Thomas Poling, who lives over here in Yellowcoat. Uh, you know, so this is, there is an aesthetic conversation to have. These are people who are trained artists, and, and yeah, it's there. Right now, we are in, in the museum currently, and um, we have an exhibition called Your House is Mine. And today, I got to describe the Tompkins Square riots to students who were born in, ready, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> 2002. 
Yeah. Right? So historical information yeah. about the Tompkins Square riots and what the sort of trifecta of worry for these artists was in AIDS crisis, housing crisis, homelessness crisis, right? And these artists are making propaganda. They are not making things for commercial sale, but they need to turn the ship around. And they are using found objects, working in a collaborative way that I still can't quite understand how they got anything done, to be frank. But they're speaking in the language of propaganda, but it's toward these incredibly forward social movements. So there's a spot where we're having an aesthetic conversation and we're having the content conversation about what is the message being told. And they're making it not as works for hire, but because they are compelled to make it. You know, so, so there's some stuff to sort of break down there. There's almost some chicken egg going on there. You know, which came first? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Okay. I, I want to comment on uh, what you said about uh, the youth of your audience. Um, we just got back from uh, 17 days in, in Romania um, where we talk about things uh, that happened uh, in the 1970s and 80s and they say, oh, that's the era of communism. Like it's ancient history, you know? Anything 30 years ago is, is, is ancient. But a 92-year-old Jewish poet came up to us and handed me this book of poetry and asked if I would translate and set some of it to music. May I share with you a poem now or a little later? Now is good? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap up with that. that let's finish up with it. Okay. Finish. Show it up. To, all right. Sure. Well, I hope we won't we be finishing it soon. Up. We have lots more but, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and okay. it, it's one of those perspective things that sometimes sure. I have none. Sometimes <laughs> I have a lot of perspective. Just, um, to sort of add to, to what you're saying about the youth of that audience, they've never known Times Square to be anything other than owned by Disney. Disney, right. <laughs> and they just, you know, and it's not a, a criticism of their time or anything like that, yeah. but they cannot imagine, they just yeah. cannot imagine oh, that, that kind of worry and fear that people had about AIDS as a crisis and homelessness as a crisis. They just don't, it's right. just not part of their vernacular understanding. Well, one of the other things that I wanted to bring up before we uh, leave it is um, the centennial of... Uh, Rosa Luxemburg was this past year, and uh, we did four performances uh, in New York and New Jersey and two in Germany. We just got back from the opening of the uh, Lundberg Festival for one of them. This book, uh, I totally recommend. It's an incredible book by an, a, a graphic artist in, in, in England um, based on tremendous amount of research, and it guided me in writing the opera about her. Because Rosa Luxemburg, I don't know how many of you know who she was, um, she was a, a Polish Jewish immigrant to Germany who helped found the, the German Communist Party, fought with the Spartacists, was assassinated uh, in cold blood on January 15th, 1919. Um, she basically took Karl Marx's capital and finished it. I mean, she was a brilliant economist. There are 17 volumes of her writing and hundreds of articles and a movie that was made in, in Germany years ago. Um, and picking among that material was so difficult, this book made it much easier to, to pick the things. And one of the things that, that uh, is not in the book, actually, but that I found online, is, which is, is so valuable as a, as a mantra about her and in, on this subject, she said, to be apolitical is to be political without knowing it. <laughs>
Back to chickens and eggs here. <laughs> exactly. Um, I will. This is going to, I think, hit on your field of expertise, and you may have some comments to bring in here. Let's go to Nazis and jazz. You know, degenerate art. It's sort of the jazz kind of blew up in their face. <laughs> it, it wasn't just the Nazis that, that hated jazz. It was the Russians, too. Well, <laughs> I mean, they, they, yeah. it was, right. it was, it was con considered bourgeois or, or, or worse. <laughs> yeah. And Well, this is kind of gets me into some of it. it it's interesting that hand, it became on, very... On the other hand, they had um, black music as opposed to jazz. I mean, mm -hmm. um, was something else. I, I have a story to tell you about Paul Robeson in Russia, mm -hmm. which I heard from his son mm -hmm. um, and my mother, who knew Robeson. Um, <coughs> Paul Robeson uh, appeared on uh, a program with um, Solomon Michoels, who was the greatest Yiddish actor that ever lived, did King Lear and Tevye and everything else, and uh, he was, Michoels was the, um, was the director of the Jewish theater in, in Moscow, and he was also chosen by Stalin to head the Jewish anti-fascist committee, came to, to uh, went all over the world, raised millions of dollars in uh, funds for, so for Russian war relief in 1943. My mother was his interpreter in Boston. When we told these uh, people that we uh, were meeting in Russia and Belarus about this, they, they said, oh my God, you started treating us as royalty, you know, having us mm -hmm. sign books because Mikhoyles was really the king. He, he, was, uh, he, was, he appeared on, on, on a platform with Charlie Chaplin and with Paul Robeson in 1948. Uh, in 1944. In 1948, he was killed in what was staged as a car accident. Um, and it wasn't until 1952 or three that people realized that he had been killed by Stalin. Paul Robeson was in Russia in 1950, he, or 49, and he wanted to see Mikhail was dead. So he wanted to see um, Pfeffer, uh, Itzhak Pfeffer, the poet that had come with, with uh, Robeson. And Pfeffer signaled to him that they were being taped and that, uh, and, and he wrote on a piece of paper Stalin killed Mikhoyles and then flushed it down the toilet. And Robeson was really alarmed, but he wanted to do something in solidarity with the Jews of Russia, even though he didn't want to criticize the Soviet government to be part of the anti-Soviet fascists. Mm -hmm. So what did he do? He, he, he said to, the, to his, his, his handlers, uh, I'm, I'm doing program New York Spirituals, I want to sing the partisan lead, the song of the Warsaw Ghetto and the resistance. And they said to him, um, we'd rather you sing, uh, well, well you sing the program of the Don't sing that Jewish song. There aren't too many, there aren't very many Jews here. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, really? Are there many Negroes here? And, and then, you know, that intimidated them, and then he, and then he sang it. And um, that was in 1949. When I was in Russia in 1985, this was during Gorbachev's uh, um, moratorium on, on, on testing. Um, I was there for a, a youth conference, and um, I decided, I, was, I gave a concert, and I decided to sing that song. And I told them, I'm doing it in the road version I learned from the recordings of Paul Robeson. Dozens of Jews came up to me afterwards mm -hmm. to tell me how much it meant to them he recognized to have to that they remembered Robeson mm -hmm. doing that and how it much it meant to them in 49 and again in 85. This is the power there, of music. I was going to say, there's also some seminal figures in American history who that generation you're talking about does, probably doesn't know who Paul Robinson is, probably doesn't know who a Marian Anderson probably does and this, this pains me. So we have a job to do. We have a job <laughs> to do. Um, I, I'm going to mention something else. Um, uh, Stalin, uh, that <laughs> well-known person, uh, 
wanted to use music as propaganda, and they would commission these pieces. Um, uh, the first big uh, propaganda piece of the, you know, Ivan Zierzynski's Tichy Don was like the first propaganda opera. And through to the 70s, uh, Rostovsky wrote a thing called The Dawns Are Quiet Here. Wait a minute, don't, don't uh, go away from Tichy Don. Okay. Do you know what Tichy Don is in English? Go. Tichy Don is, uh, in, it's called And Quiet Flows the Dawn. And it's Mikhail Sholokhov's mm -hmm. Nobel Prize winning novel mm -hmm. based on the uh, Russian Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to tell you that he wrote another short story called The Family Man, which was kind of a mm -hmm. prologue to that, which I turned into an opera. And that was done uh, in, mm -hmm. in New York and in Germany. And I showed it at that conference where I was in Russia, and several Soviet composers came and watched it, and it was in English, but they knew the story because, you know, yeah. it, it was Sholokhov. It was part of their propaganda. And, and, that, and that's a very, very moving story, which yeah. Ernest Simmons has compared to the power of Mother Courage. But I was going to say, uh, along the same line, so he was demonizing another composer, Dmitry Shostakovich, for writing that. They didn't quite call it degenerate, but it was that same idea, Lady Macbeth of, of Mitsensk, which is a terrific, terrific opera. I and tell you about a, an amazing piece. And like, this was, you know, you can't do that because I don't like it. Yeah, it was very And, and we're doing these pieces which aren't yeah. really, uh, uh, you know, on the same level as Shostakovich. Shostakovich later revised it as Katarina Ismailovna. Mm -hmm. um, it right. wasn't really that much revised, but he revised it to, mm -hmm. you know, to save face or whatever. Mm -hmm. When I was in Russia for the first time in 1971, I met with some young composers. I wanted to meet Shostakovich, but he was in the hospital and I, didn't, I never did get to meet him, but I met several of his students and colleagues. And um, I said, we talked about that very uh, 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 incident where Stalin condemned uh, uh, Lady Macbeth and Stens and Shostakovich apologized, wrote the Fifth Symphony, and then revised the opera later on. And um, I said, well, so he apologized. He, he, thanked, he thanked them for that. And, and these young composers said to me, he thanked them for that? How would you feel if some bureaucrat came in and tried to tell you how to write music? You know, and, and they wouldn't say that in public, but they said it to me in private. You know, even in well, 71. There was a lot of yeah. that going on. Um, I have one for you. Sometimes, you know, I, I love the internet. We hear things, we find things, and sometimes you just wonder if you're reading correctly. Let me read this, and then <laughs> I'm going to say disgust to John. Tony Perkins, who is the president of the Right Wing Family Research Council, recently dubbed musicals nothing but homosexual propaganda. He accused the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Samantha Power, of using her influence to persuade 15 of her fellow ambassadors of the need to celebrate homosexuality because she took them to see a gay Broadway musical, the Tony Award-winning Fun Home. Do you have any comment? I can see your face. <laughs> I know I'm putting you on the spot terribly, but discussed maybe from a, I don't know, maybe more rational way of thinking? You're just shaking your head. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, some, some things uh, you, just can't, um, you just can't explain them rationally, you know. Um, you know, it's ironic because, you know, the musical theater form, right, Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, most of their plays, you know, had social justice themes, you know, that, that people could still, you know, hum on their way out of the theater. So I don't know what that, guy, that fellow's talking about. I, I think that theater, like, uh, like any other art form, uh, um, is a subject of its times, you know, and uh, 
you know, for instance, uh, Indecent, right? Uh, Polo Vogel, uh, actually Eastline's going to be producing it in, in January. Um, it's based on Schultz Solomash's A God of Vengeance, right, which was written in 1906. Uh, Yiddish author, um, had some success here in, on Broadway in the 20s until they got shut down because of censorship. Um, had themes of uh, 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 two women falling in love. Um, obviously, it was ahead of its time. Um, what's kind of neat about Indecent, the show, is that it actually shows how so the, it's written in 1906, it's condemned for censorship in the 20s, and then the scenes of the, the original troupe now back in Nazi Germany under occupation actually doing the play like subvertively, you know, just because it still had, had to give it its voice, you know? So again, what this dude's talking about, <laughs> I, I really can't comment on that. Exactly. You know, it's like sometimes you don't know what you're reading. But you mentioned something, and, and I always have to jump in as it's sort of a Rodgers and Hammerstein specialist. In, in 2007, when they revived South Pacific on Broadway, it brought back a lot of good things. Oh, this show's not going to work anymore. This show was as powerful in 2007 as it was in 1949. And in the, the conversations, they didn't write that as propaganda. They most certainly didn't write that as propaganda. They wrote it as entertainment, commercial. But they were warned by producers, you've got to cut. Carefully taught. You've got to cut the whole sub, uh, uh, sub, you can't have an interracial couple. We can't bring this show to Washington, D.C. because yeah. it's in the South. This will not work. And Rogers, Hammerstein was one of the most liberal people and a very forward-thinking man and said, then there's no point in doing the show. There is no point in doing <laughs> the show. It was that powerful. Um, you know, and, and they believed it. So, and in any way, shape, or form, do I think South Pacific is propaganda? No, but there was definitely some social context coming in, in there. Yeah, to, going to the theme we talked about earlier about you know uh, there being a certain line, right, of, of avoiding hitting somebody over the head. Maybe doesn't become art anymore, right? Becomes something else. Uh, Jean Ennui is a, a production of a, a version of Antigone, right, in the forties set in Vichy, France, right? Uh, instead of Greeks, it was Nazis. You know, the irony of that was that most people think of it as an anti-Nazi indictment. But if you think about it, the Vichy, France could have shut it down. But they didn't because he managed to write it in a way where Creon's point of view, right, was as an institutionalist, oh. to a certain degree, actually validated what they were trying to do. So to me, that's perfect art, right? And we didn't go into it, you know, for a particular, to try and persuade anybody. He went into it actually being faithful to the original Greek, being faithful to the original content, right? The story, the fact that, you know, the, the, the conflict between, you know, humans and, and the rigidity of society set it in a particular time because it had a particular point of view. But even in that time, there were some layers, and you used the word, you know, layers before. Uh, that's to me where art really explodes, and I think it's really difficult to um, to go into it. Going back to Roger Hammerstein, you know, even though that influenced the story, I don't think that was their major goal going into it. You know, and and what what wound up happening 
was probably far beyond whatever they could have accomplished if they did go into overtly. And that you also brought up something that is, you're very good at getting to the next thing in my stream of consciousness <laughs> thoughts here about censorship. And censorship a lot of time plays in with propaganda. And sometimes like with, you know, totalitarianist states, it doesn't happen in this country. Ha. Huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> the Cradle of Rock is the classic uh, example. But can you give me some examples of censorship that have actually backfired? And certain pieces have be things that have become much more popular because of it. It's like, once you tell somebody you can't see something, everybody wants to see it. Or you can't hear or, or talk about. Oh, yeah. So, you know, go, you're... you're I, I think I want to I get into. I think that yeah. there's two main um, there's two main things that I would right, right off the top of the head, um, the sensation exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum, right? The sensation <laughs> exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. What year is that? Late '90s, early 2000s. Um, Rudolph Giuliani is mayor, and there are um, several works in the exhibition that. Um, I think it's right. mostly the Catholics, actually, <laughs> kind of escalate to him and say this is a problem. Um, the image of the Holy Virgin Mary, the Holy Virgin Madonna, um, everybody complains because Chris Ophelia, the artist, uses elephant dung yep. to paint the Madonna. That's what everybody says. Yep. That's not even the truth. Close, <laughs> close, it's not. The problem with that image, and you can go home and Google it if you want, the problem with that image is that it offers an image of the Virgin Mary, and at the very bottom it's held up by little balls of elephant dung. Chris Ophelia is West African, and that's a fuel source, right? So yeah. dried elephant dung is a fuel source, so he's using it as this precious object. That, that's why he's using it. But the whole thing is that the Virgin Mary is then surrounded by these little things, these little shapes that look like jewels almost. But upon close examination, what you find out is that it's pornographic images of women taken from the rear um, with their vulvas exposed. So this is what never gets discussed on the news because we'd rather talk about elephant dung <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> than the process of birth. So Ophelia is referenced, you know, the Virgin Mary is nothing if she doesn't give birth to Christ. And so when he puts those images in there, it's very offensive to people to think about the Virgin Mary as female and a birth giver when you kind of throw these images. Up. So it's very difficult. So sensation, and then there's a black woman who serves as Christ in a Last Supper image. The whole thing is degenerate art, and Brooklyn Museum loses its funding. The city threatens to defund them. They close the doors. Where's the Brooklyn Museum today? right? They are at the top of the line. And the second one that I think that comes to mind almost immediately is Robert Maplethorpe at the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, when, when that was closed, there's so many examples of this, but when that was closed, the staff of the Corcoran Gallery and the workers, you know, like blue-collar laborers of, of their team worked to bring a slide projector outside at night to show the images on the blank wall of the Corcoran Gallery. Oh, wow. <laughs> and security, you know, turned a blind eye That's and allowed cute. these images, which were um, homoerotic male images, um, interracial, I mean, you name it, uh, you know, he was dressing. But now, rather than just being on some quiet walls inside that you had to navigate, now it's on the outside. And, you know, I think those are two, to, to my mind, those are two recent famous and The examples. other thing with those sensation, I think it was 1998, because I did, we 
did work together at the time. And uh, another colleague said, you want to go and chain yourself to the front of the Brooklyn Museum tomorrow? So like, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, we didn't have to do that. But could you get a ticket to Sensation after that? They, they, they extended hours to get people into this thing. It be, suddenly became the hot ticket in town and gave sort of like, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And bad publicity is good publicity. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to... Uh talk about The Cradle Rock, and um, have you seen the movie uh, called Cradle Rock, which is also about the um, mural of, um, uh, the Rockefeller mural, of it's Diego, Rivera. Diego Rivera, yeah. It's all combined, it's smashed together in one film, and uh, it, it was really three films, it was also about the Federal Theater Project, um, and it didn't, it was $40 million film, didn't win any Academy Awards, which is a shame, because it was a terrific ensemble piece, but it really was three films. Um, and The, the Cradle Rock was censored, the Federal Theater Project um, was forbidden to produce it, and it's the classic example of, of uh, censorship uh, being turned around. The, the only example in history of a, uh, a cast uh, threatening uh, not to, de demanding that they, they, they work rather than going on strike. Um, it was the opposite of the strike because they were kicked out of their theater and they walked up, they found another theater, walked up 20 blocks, got a piano, and Woodstein performed the whole thing on stage with the actors. Well, the actors were forbidden by Actors' Equity to come on, on stage, which, and, and, and this turned out later to be f a false, but that's what they were told at the time. So Orson Welles had the idea, uh, there's no th nothing that can prevent you from buying your way into the theater, and then when you, uh, when you're, uh, uh, then get up and speak your piece when your cue comes. And that's what they did from all over the theater. And then managers after, you know, besieged them. They wanted to produce it that way. And, and that's how the piece was almost always done until just this last year. It was finally done with the original orchestration that, that had been uh, uh, discarded. Well, Leonard Bernstein told me that uh, he preferred the, the original version, with, with, uh, the, the, the version with, with piano, actually. But the orchestration is in many amazing. I mean, Blitzstein was influenced by both Hans Eisler and Kurt Weill. And you can hear the Eisler in the piano score, but you can hear Weil in the orchestra score. That's the difference. And I didn't realize that myself until I heard it just this last year. And we didn't even but, talk about Kurt Weil, who, who's a very <laughs> interesting yeah. character. Well, if you want to talk about censorship, though, the, the, yeah. the, the Rivera, you want to talk about the Rivera mural? You probably know more about it than I do. The, the Rockefeller mural yeah. that, that Rivera was asked to do, and then it has to be taken down because, because it has Lennon communist. Was in it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it has very communist overtures. Yeah, that, yeah. that's a, a significant problem in a capitalist <laughs> a capitalist <laughs> culture um, to kind of you know propagate that idea. I think he, he I think he later re replicated it in Mexico or something. Yes, he later right. brings it into Mexico where you know it's. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, you know, it's accepted, a, there's yeah. a communist revolution going on. So, yeah. yes, it's, it's totally accepted at that time. Yeah. 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 But they were, fa when um, Diego and, and Frida were in Detroit, they were fascinated by the, in the um, automobile industry, yeah. actually, the, the, that it kind of, they kind of talked about it feeling communist, actually, yeah. this way that it was produced and, and things like this. So. Uh, we mentioned Giuliani and um, others leading, leading, leading uh, protests <laughs> against, against art. Uh, I mean, uh, th this brings up something that, that is, is close to home. Um, I was at Harvard in three classes with John Adams, uh, who wrote... Uh, the opera based on um, uh, Alice Goodman's libretto, 
um, the death of Klinghoffer. And um, he, in it, uh, she's Jewish, but she later became an Episcopal priest. I mean, she's accused of being self-hating, and I think it's not uh, inaccurate, because she depicted the Jewish characters in that um, opera as not very sympathetic, and, 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 and the family was very upset. They, did, they, they asked them to cease and desist, they really, and they wouldn't. They said artistic license. And as a result of the family's protest, people converged on the Metropolitan Opera when they did it and actually threatened to burn the place down. I mean, there was that much anger. Um, in, in, uh, and we took that as a negative example of how not to work when we did uh, an opera based on the story of the Triangle Fire. Um, it, it actually began in a workshop, and my librettist Ellen Frankel uh, had written a scene uh, which was a fantasy about um, a, a shop owner and, and a, a, a sales and, and a, 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 a seamstress and uh, imagined a romance and, and that he rescued her and so forth and so on. Well, that never happened. And she wanted to expand the opera, and we did expand the opera uh, around that scene. And then when we started um, uh, talking to people who were descendants of survivors of the, and, and victims of the Triangle Fire, um, one of them said to me, you're going to incur the hatred of everybody <laughs> because you, you, you're, you're depicting this woman as a, as a fragile flower. She was a strong woman and the, and the, the, and the, uh, the factory owner was, was a, a greedy bastard, but he was a family man. He was not a, a womanizer. No, you're going to do everything wrong. So I went to my librettist and I said, we are not going to take the example of the death of Klinghoffer. We are not going to go against the families. We're going to change the story to make it true because there's enough in the original story that's dramatic. And you know, when we announced this, we had six performances of it, one at HBO, and there were survivors, you know, family members there. And when I mentioned that, they all cheered. You know, <laughs> there was, you know, I mean, similarly, in 1992, Harold Prince revives Showboat in Toronto, uh, yeah, and there were picket lines out front opening night about just the, the treatment of blacks and how could you and That's what it. have you. And how did Harold Prince handle this? He said, why don't you come in and see the show first? Yeah. And then if you <laughs> want to pick it. And you know, it turned out to be the opposite. I mean, he did a really brilliant job I with this it, yeah, show. And, <laughs> and, and Mark, did he collect ticket prices from those people? From the <laughs> That's the way to do it, if you can. As long as they spell the name right. Um, <laughs> The uh, you know censorship is again an overt example of institution exerting um, undue influence over art. You know, the, the, it's not always overt. You know, like the agent property talked about with the Russians, you know, China, right? If the whole system is controlled, then by definition, the, the art's going to be controlled. But like in Elizabethan times, you know, Queen Elizabeth, you know, at that time, to do a show for the, in a theater, it had to be licensed. So Queen Elizabeth didn't have to tell you what to write, but, right. but <laughs> if you didn't get a license, that kind of like took care of it. You know, the Lord anyway. Chamberlain, right? And, and, and it was really important, actually, and it turned out an important tool for her and her government because, you know, because of illiteracy, you know, a lot of, to get her message out, it wasn't like a lot of the populace was going to be able to read a pamphlet. You know, but to see a show that they could pay a, you know, pence for it to get to is really an important you know, mechanism for kind of getting stuff across. So you know, it, it's one of those um, obvious you know, freedoms we have, which is kind of makes you know, efforts at censorship even more 
uh, uh, inappropriate because if you think about it, you know, like going back then, those people would have would have would have literally, you know, done anything to be able to get the kind of voice that you know we we take for granted here. Do you, Let me, and just to bring it back to Shakespeare was writing works for hire. To bring well, yeah. it back to that, anybody think Shakespeare's works are not great art? Uh, you know, there's something happens there. So there's that comes from work for hire. Go, and then I want to mention Cent one more thing. Censorship in the theater. Do you do you remember the uh, the skit from Beyond the Fringe about the Lord Cobble? Do you remember that? Yeah. You want to do it? Or no, I, 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 I I did it. No, that was my. I don't do improv. That was my, that was my role on, on, in my first play at Harvard and Beyond the Fringe. I played at the Dudley Moore role, and it said, "The um, Lord Cobble, uh, uh, what do you think of our uh, of censorship in the theater?" Well, uh, frankly, I think that the, uh, the censorship in the theater far too much is getting gets by in the name of entertainment these days. I mean, uh, I, I go yeah. to the theater to be taken yes. out of myself. I don't want to see lust, rape, incest, sodomy. I can get all that at home. Thank you, Lord Cobble. Yeah. There's also, I mean, to, there's um, a, a wonderful interview with um, Seth, Family Guy. Myers? McFarlane. McFarlane, um, where he's talking about being on the BBC and he's talking about censorship and says something, well, you know, they got, you know, it, it pisses off the censors sometimes and, and the British censors are, oh, well, we have to apologize. And like, my explanation of censorship got me censored on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> which happened. I'll, I'll bring in one more thing and then we'll talk about here. There was a play in 1969 called McBird. Look it up. Do you know McBird? Uh, it was, it's taking Macbeth and sort of putting the Johnsons in as... Yeah, wow. Wow. Uh, Rue McClanahan was Lady Bird and I forget, oh gosh, I can see him. Stacy Keach. Well, at some point, a lot, and a lot of people went into this, but this was one of those shows that probably would not have run had it not been so controversial and, you know, been so derided by so many people. It's like, we have to go see this. Mark, it I ran wrote, for. I wrote an editorial about that piece in my high school newspaper because the Honor Society wanted to go see it and they, the administration wouldn't let us go. Yeah. That's, that was censorship. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of fascinating things here, but we've got some people here. I wonder if you have any questions or comments. And I saw some, um, you know, I don't know. Did we step on your toes at all, Oksana? You lived in Russia, correct? Yeah. yeah. I mean, any, any point or counterpoint you want to make with us? or? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. There was propaganda. That, that's the way it was. <laughs> well, I, I can I can speak to that. I have a dear friend who grew up in, in Russia, and he's now working for Boeing in Seattle. But he he, he used to talk about how when you write a twenty-five page thesis um, in in engineering or in whatever, you always write it for nineteen or twenty or twenty-one pages because you have to leave four pages to fill in, you know, with party programs and all kinds of other things, you know. And and then he and he he also uh, uh, there was a joke that he told my parents, and then I told him, and he said, Lonya, that's a that's a very old joke. The beard is longer than yours, which is that there was a uh, there's a sign that that uh, um, when when a, when a uh, there was always a sign that said Lenin is with us, you know, Lenin is always with us. Remember that Lenin tsunami, um, and the joke was that when a young couple moved into an apartment, it had to be for three because Lenin is always with us, right? That was the joke. It's very old. <laughs> Does anybody want to, like, 
bring up a, any question or any comments or start a different dialogue? Because, I mean, we can keep talking as you, as you, we can go until next Thursday, but um, no, we haven't pushed any buttons. Oh, then we haven't done our job. Go ahead, Arlene. <laughs> so, I want to go back to the poster of Rosie the Riveter. Because that, I think that was a very was to show during the wartime a woman took over a man's job so that that man could go out and, and fight for us. And it was, a, it was a very interesting point and I just didn't think that you hit that. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I, I think the purpose of the work is, is really, really important. There's, there's no question about that. Um, just to be just to be clear, there's there's absolutely no question about that. Um, but this, I, I guess, what I'm what I'm thinking about is what is setting the artist on fire, and if if the the work that they're making that's work for hire is an agreement or not an agreement, that's a different thing. But what about work that's being made because they feel on fire to make it? And that's sort of the, the that's the distinction I was seeking. Not to, not to disparage that work or to disparage the designs that are made for the, the bonds or, or anything. Um, but what does it mean to take, what, what does it mean to be an artist working for hire? And you could think about a, a web designer for um, Trader Joe's, right? And he's making the, you know, making, but what's the thing that, that where his burning is, that, that um, compulsion, the, the desire to make art. Do you understand what I mean? And that's, that's something that I, I think that, that that's what I was seeking to, to bring up, not to disparage. The, the work is it's incredible. It was actually done, commissioned for what you said, to, you know, to show women that we need you and there's a need and you can do this. And definitely... But it, it wasn't the it iconic is. poster. Well, it is. Because frankly, it doesn't matter. The person who's doing the, the work, the person who's told, here's the message you're going to convey. We don't know. Did he go in his office like, oh, for Christ's sake, I got to make this about these women in the workplace? This is garbage. Women shouldn't be in the workplace. Like, we don't necessarily, that's a privileged person. We don't know. You know. Yeah, but we don't have to. But when did the poster become iconic? In the post-feminist era. In the post-feminist era. Yeah, it wasn't so iconic. Yeah, it did its message. It did the work, and then it came back. <laughs> Frida later. Kahlo was the first female artist who was from the New World, from the side of the ocean, to ever sell a work while she was living to the Louvre Museum. So the Louvre Museum purchases a work by Frida Kahlo while she's in France. She is the first living female artist who is not a Western, you know, not a European person to have that work purchased. When she comes off the boat back to New York, it says, the wife of Diego Rivera has returned from Europe today, right? So like we are in a very privileged, and we know this because of the post-feminist era, right? So it's a, it's a different... It's a tough thing to think about, like putting that in its right time. Yeah, and it was just a Saturday Night Live sketch. We had happened, in fact, um, this is my son who's here because, you know, like 
He might get paid in pizza, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but we just went with my father to um, FDR's house in Hyde Park. So we had a lot of propaganda last weekend and the war effort. And Rosie the Riveter was, was sort of all over this D-Day exhibition. And then there was a Saturday Night Live sketch that night about Rosie the Riveter. It's totally blue and inappropriate, and you shouldn't watch it with your children, but I did. Um, but this idea about the roles of women, you know, and it was, it was kind of interesting. So... And- it's, it's also fun when you, fun, and I use that term in quotes, when you try to, you know, certain works are like derided for the message they were portraying. It's like, you can't put 2019 filters on a work from 1957, 1847. I mean, it, you just can't. The, it, the, it, things were so different. And while, yes, it might be a little insensitive, or, or yes, certain words we don't use anymore or what, but get to the subject. I mean, Mark Twain for goodness sakes. They don't teach Mark Twain in high schools anymore? But you know what's interesting is that with the Rosie the Riveter, you know, this is decades later, and it is being used. It is being used as a women empowerment message right now. So maybe, I mean, I I think in the beginning that was part of the message. I mean, that's not just my opinion. Um, you know, it was the state of the world and it was a real situation where women were called to the workforce because of the war. But that's clearly a message that we see very, very um, prominently, I think. At least I've seen it used repeatedly. I mean, even for Halloween, you get little kids, little girls, babies, babies, <laughs> whose parents are empowering those little babies or that message that that, that poster put out. So I think... Different and filters. That, yeah, filters, and those messages do resurface, you know, as we're faced with different issues in society. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's definitely true. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the equal pay for equal work in the post-feminist era, you know, that makes the conversation a lot more comfortable. But I would love to have an interview with a woman who was a riveter working in 1976. Yeah. I mean, I know... I know several tradeswomen who worked through the 70s and 80s, and uh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't cheap. Yeah. Let's all get the job done together, yeah. sir and ma'am. Yeah. And I think that that's really, you know, it obfuscates some of the, the plight of women who've worked in trades before. So, you know, I think that it's a, a sort of Damocles. And, you know, just, I'll give an example. A, a very dear friend of mine, um, I'm from Buffalo, New York. She was one of the first women to get a job in a flour mill since World War II in 1989 because the federal government said, look, you've got to hire some women. You know, <laughs> you have to do this. So Rosie <laughs> um, took on a whole different meeting then. Um, you the message was to... go back home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Go back yeah. home. Where you belong. But that taste was yeah. good. Yeah. Okay. Harper, you, did you have a question? I have a lot to say. <laughs> It was um, something on the subject where you mentioned that you can't put a filter from 2019 onto the past, basically. In reference to that, I think that we can and we should, and I think that it's problematic that we don't because there are issues that are happening today that we can say five or ten years from now that we can't put a filter. I think we do, and then we're being, it's not even being insensitive, I think that, I had a, a, I think that, so like for example, as an African American, which I don't even go by, but looking back at 1957 and today to say that you can't 
put that fil you have to, in my opinion. The, fil the filter of justice always yeah. needs to, to be there, and, I, and you're right. But and does I, that invalidate something from the past? Yes and no. I yeah, think yeah, that yeah. it's complex to just say yeah. it doesn't know what it does. Yeah. But I think, even, I, think it, I think it has to do almost with, the, with what the original message was. You know, let's give an example. What's, um, what's the Metropolitan Opera's sold-out hit this year? Porgy and Bess, written by a white Jewish man and his white Jewish brother about the black experience in, 19, in, in, in uh, thank you, that state over there, South Carolina, it's past my bedtime. Uh, and, and it just, but there's some real um, social justice going on in there. This was, it's a marvelous production. If you get a chance to go to see it, I strongly recommend it. And it's the first time I've seen this production where you realize things like, Bess is a real addict. You know, that doesn't really come to the forefront as much as things. And like maybe because they couldn't really talk about that as much in 1937 in a 1952 revival, especially a revival they're taking to the Soviet Union. Uh, there's just different, you know, sometimes the filters really work in favor of a piece. And a piece of great art is going to be a piece of great art from in 1937, 57, 2019. I agree, but it's still... Yeah. If I may ask you something, you put in a proposal for funding to us. Would you mind mentioning what it is? And do you think you're, what you want to do, could it be considered propaganda by some people? And if you, you might use it in Or am I putting you on the spot? You don't have to if you don't want to. We couldn't hear her without it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't consider that propaganda. So in my opinion, when I'm thinking of propaganda, I'm thinking of there's some sort of fallacy that's like trying to be pushed upon people. What's the project you want to do? Okay, okay. You oh, okay. That to me is propaganda because how can a white Jewish man tell the story of a black man? That is literally impossible, especially if you're in America, because there's the white gaze. That's not fair. And I want to wait, wait, one minute. And no, but it is fair because I'm, you know, I come from the Caribbean. I'm the first generation, and you know, when I go back to my parents' country, for instance, in Barbados, and I'm there as a tourist, and I see other white people there, the experience is going to be different. It's always going to be different. So then to hear someone saying, oh, well, this story is a riveting story, who is it a riveting story for? Who, you know what I mean? That, that's mm -hmm. how I look at it. I, I, um, I have to respond to that. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, Horgy and Bess, by, by teacher of Sigmeister's estimation, and my own and many others, is the greatest American opera ever written. 
It is written about black people, it is not written by black people, but it is extremely sympathetic compared to them. What is the most popular opera in, the, so in Russia? So Carmen, so which was written by a Frenchman about Spanish people. To say that of one person, I wrote an opera about Native Americans, uh, and, and it was called uh, New World, an opera about what Columbus did to the quote Indians. It was commissioned by the Puffer Foundation. And I studied, just as, as Gershwin studied Gullah and the dialect thoroughly, I studied for years the uh, uh, Native American things and wrote about them. And to say that it's cultural appropriation and that I can't write about something that isn't my own culture is anathema. It, it, it doesn't belong in this yours. country. I never mentioned cultural appropriation. And again, so my question to you is then, where are you from originally? Where I from originally? Yes. Mm -hmm. I was born here. My mother's from Russia. Okay, my wife so is from, uh, father's from Romania. So, so I do have some roots in these places. So your storytelling is coming from, whether you want to admit it or not, a white gaze. You cannot tell the story of someone else who looks different to you. You can learn, you can learn about them, mm -hmm. and then what you can do then is tell what you believe to be the story, but you cannot tell mm -hmm. the story of a Hispanic person, a black woman, a black man. You can't. You, you can tell can. the story from okay. the point of view. Okay. That, 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 there. That yeah. Analogy. Uh, well, analogy. <laughs> They feel that if, if, you're, if you're black in the Gullah culture, you, 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 you have one life. If you're, if you're uh, uh, so, somebody in, 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 in a, a living, living in with, with eight other families in Russia, you're feeling something. And everybody has emotions, and everybody has, has feelings, and everybody has a human condition where they're trying to get out of feeling so rotten by doing things. And that's what is in common in all great art whether it's about one culture or another culture. And that's why this stuff lasts. And can I tell you something? Sure. sure. That's something that you can say as a white woman. Okay. I cannot say that. I think that okay. So what? Can what, I just, what I just? Can I weigh in for one? Weigh, weigh in for one minute, and for, then we're going one, to. For, no, no, no. Okay. Okay. No, no. I, I think that when um, I think that there's a danger in looking for art to tell you the truth. And I think that when we, when we talk in, so when, our, when you think that Washington crossing the Delaware is actually how it happened, the way it looks, you're, you're wrong because it can't tell you the truth. And when we think that artists are only telling us the truth, we, we should be really, really careful. That, that's one side of the coin. And I think the other thing is to kind of, um, to draw a soft line between an incredible story being told, right, with Porgy and Bess being an incredible story being told, but to not misunderstand it as authentic black experience, I think is, is the, the point that you're making. Mm -hmm. And so it can still be a great story, and you, you can still write an awesome story about, about Native American experience, um, but, but that's it. And I, and I think from that perspective, it's a, it's a complicated, mm -hmm. it, it's well, something to be well, cautious about. Hold. Bring it on home, bring it on home. Last comment. Okay, so each one of us um, is born into this life, and we are a product of our personal experiences that came from perhaps my grandma and my grandpa and their opinions. And this young lady has comes from whence she came, and it's okay 
to try to replicate because of your uh, knowledge and the things that you've learned, but it's not the same. And the point of doing conversations is that we don't all have to agree. We have to have the conversation. That's what I think is so important. We have to have conversations. Now, you had a burning desire to read a poem. I think it will be a good way to end up. Sure. This better be good. <laughs> well, this is, this is a, no poem, a poem by a 92-year-old Jewish-Romanian uh, poet who's still alive and presented this to me, and I translated it. And actually, uh, just I think to, you should use the mic. Yeah, you're, right. you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, uh, he, he he uses a word that I don't translate literally. He he uses the word attentat. Uh, do you know what that word means? It's a German word, and it's usually translated as propaganda by deed. Okay, so uh, it attracted me to this because that's a word that Emma Goldman and uh, Alexander Berkman used when they tried to assassinate uh, uh, Henry Clay Frick at the, at the uh, uh, Homestead strike in 1982. It became the basis of, of, of Emma Goldman's whole life uh, justifying that. Um, this is a piece that brought me and Helene together that's been done in five countries and 49 productions. And um, it's, I mean, Emma Goldman argued, that, as, as you were saying, if you're doing theater, how can, how can you not talk about theater and, and, and not, how can you talk about theater and not talk about politics? It's impossible. Um, so the attentat is mentioned in here. I translated it uh, uh, not as propaganda by deed, but rather as um, attempted, an ill-attempted coup, which is also what, what it could be. So here's, here's the poem, and it, it also is, is kind of uh, related to the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this, this past year. So here we go. Emerging from a crater on the moon, I flew toward Earth. Upon a friendly breeze, I found a berth and landed in a leafy oak lagoon where I could bathe amid the morning dew. Of onlookers, I gathered quite a few. And merchants tried to place me in a zoo to put a purchase price on me and such so as to charge per view or pet or touch. I really didn't like that very much. And so I ran away to some place oriental and outré. But there... I found an ill-attempted coup resulting in such strife and much ado, armed forces holding sway and all in disarray. The next day, I sought a land that warfare would eschew and found one that might do, where crooks got rich and called each other great, while scoundrels seized the ship of state. That's not the way, I had to say, to stay. I'd have to be as crazy as a loon. So, sometime later, I flew back to the moon and crawled back into my own quiet crater. And there we go. So I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank the thank panels, you. Leonard, Barbara, John, and Wah. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having a good conversation. <laughs>